Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. So as we begin today, let me start with this question for you. I want you to think of the, um, the most spectacular structure that you've ever been able to visit. Maybe go into, maybe it's a building, maybe it's you know a, a skyscraper, the Eiffel Tower, something magnificent that you just go, when I think of magnificence that I've been in, that's where I go. I think of the, the city Petra that's carved in the rocks. Maybe you've seen them, they've done some movies there. It's just unbelievable that someone had the, uh, the eye to see it and then carve an entire building out of the face of the rock. I'm not sure what's on the inside. I think of that, it's pretty spectacular. Maybe when you think of the most spectacular structure, it's not its architecture. Maybe it's what it does and, and how it functions in our society. Maybe it's the state capital. Maybe it's the U.S. capital. Uh, Mary and I had the opportunity to go to the U.S. capital and be escorted all the way to the very top of the dome. Didn't know you could do that. But uh, it was really cool. Get all the way up to the top. Didn't know. Maybe, uh, maybe everyone else knew. But I didn't know that the building's not made of stone. It's made of cast iron. The dome is. It's all put together. It's all numbered. And you just put the numbers together and poof, there you go. So maybe when you think of extraordinary structures and buildings, maybe that's where you go. Or maybe you go to a home. This home is where a lot of life is lived. And maybe that's, maybe you think of an extraordinary home that you've been in that's beautiful to look at. Or maybe meaningful experiences in those homes. Maybe when you really think of the most extravagant kind of structure, place, wherever you've been, maybe it's, maybe it's your own like dining room table because that's where, that's, where you, that's where you share burdens and that's where you carry other people's burdens. That's where you uh, talk about life and laugh until your sides hurt. Right? Here's what we're going to learn today. God is building right now an unbelievable structure, an unbelievable home. He's the architect, so it's spectacular. He's the builder, so it passes code. Everything works all the paint colors match. Everything is awesome. And here's the beautiful thing. He lives there. I'm not talking about the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I'm talking about what he calls the spiritual house. And he uses us as the living stones to build it. The community of faith that he uniquely puts together to be a unique people in a unique place at a unique time to make him known in their space and time and world. It's really quite amazing. Now, um, as we go into this, um, this passage is full of metaphor. It alludes to a lot of Old Testament passages. There's simile. There's lots of prepositional phrases. Peter kind of writes like I think. He'll have a thought and he'll put a comma, a dash. I don't know how he did it, but I can relate to the brother. He's just all over the place. And so it makes it hard to understand just the construction but then when you consider all the allusions to Old Testament passages, many of which we're unaware, 
So what I'm discovering is that a lot of times we might even sing a song or two. Maybe you've sung today's song and went, I love that song, but you have no idea what it's alluding to. In the Bible, in Graves to the Garden, the song we sang, all these little phrases, mourning to dancing, ashes, you know, moving up, they all refer to a passage of Scripture. And I was surprised in talking with people about this that they didn't know. Where is the garden that became a grave that became a garden? John 19 says, when Jesus died, they took him to a grave that was in a garden. And they buried him there, but it didn't stay a graveyard because he rose from the dead. So it's a statement of deliverance, bones into armies. Ezekiel 36, dry, the dry bones become an army that liberate Israel. High, uh, uh, seas into highways, the great Exodus story out of Exodus where God parts the Red Sea and they go past on dry land. Isaiah 61, we turns our mourning into dashing, uh, dancing and gives us a crown of life rather than ashes. To all statements of deliverance. And so when we read Peter, you go, I, I, I don't know the story behind the reference. So all of that makes it a bit challenging. Here's what I need you to know about this. We're going to look at two big movements. And each big movement, Peter's going to say, you all are changed. So there'll be an identity not about us individually, but about us collectively. God's changed you all. And it's really important to realize that because he's talking to people that are living in exile, living in difficulties and wondering, God's changed you. He's working in you wherever you are, whatever you, is that me or you? It's probably me. Whatever you're, yeah, so I'll just stand real still. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. Um, where in the heck was I? I don't remember where I was. Oh, mm, my rock. Everything is falling apart here. It's all coming apart. Um, the two big movements. This is who you are with that new collective identity. This is what it means. And this is why it's so. Those three movements under those two big movements. Okay? Am I making, am I making any sense? Now, all of 1 Peter is written to Christians. So everything flows out of knowing Christ and following him. And so if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, you would say, yeah, maybe I've been near him, but I've not trusted in him. I'm going to save some time at the end of our service, and I'm going to invite you to trust Christ, to put your trust in him. And step into all that Peter describes. So I want to pray for those here that are investigating Christ that need to trust him today. And I want to pray for us that God's word would, would, would speak to us and encourage us in whatever our circumstances that he's at work, not just in my life, but in our community, which is really important. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we open your word, would you speak to us would you encourage us, a community of faith? Would you remind us, alert us, infuse us with the reality that you're busily at work creating something special among us and in us where you dwell? And Lord, I pray for those here today 
that have never trusted you. They've gotten near you. They've thought about it. They've wondered about it, but they've not exercised their faith. I pray that they might trust you today and find in you all that is described in this passage. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give you our points before we get into the passage so that I can help you see them. Because we follow Jesus, first point, we are being made into a spiritual house. That's what it's going to say in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. 1 Peter 4, I mean 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Wow, that's a lot. As you come to him, as you're coming to him, it implies that you've come to him. So again, maybe you've tried to come to him and just stopped. Maybe you've thought, I can't do this. My, my family won't understand. I can't do this. I can't go all the way because if I do, I, I might have to set something down that I really want to carry with me. And Jesus is saying, hey, I need you to come on. Come all the way. Come to me. Because I'm doing something to those who come to me. I'm creating in them a spiritual house. He's forming us into a spiritual house. It's not a physical house, but he lives there nonetheless. Now, Jesus is described by Peter using metaphor. He's a living stone. And then we're described using simile. We're like living stones. We're like the, that stone because he has life. We have life. That's what he's saying. That's the comparison. Jesus is alive. He's resurrected from the dead. He is the living stone. And we are like that. We're alive. And God is using us and continues so from the moment you said yes to Jesus and said, I want to follow him, he has been bringing people together. That's why we say, look, gather in worship, sure, but we want you in a community group. We want you to get together with other people so you can see the house that God is building up close and personal and your place in it because everybody has a place. There's not a, there's not a waste pile somewhere else. You've been to construction sites, right, where there's just extra stuff. My dad was a carpenter's helper, so he prides himself on having zero waste on any project that he has. God has no waste. There's no waste pile. Everybody, everybody is used, and it's beautiful, and it's powerful. Peter loves to use the word living as a modifier. He said we have a living hope, not just any kind of hope. It's a living hope because Jesus is alive. It's a living hope. He said we are saved and nourished, not just with any word, but the living word. And he goes on to say that we are indeed living stones. And if we are living stones, and this is a spiritual house, we've been given a new identity. And with that new identity, like every identity God gives us, he also gives us a new purpose. What's our purpose? To offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what we're to do. So back to verse 5, 4 and 5. He's built us into a spiritual house to, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What? It's hard to get your mind around. We're a holy priesthood to bring spiritual sacrifices. We need to talk about these phrases and what they're alluding to. So let's start with the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, there were priests that would stand between God and humanity. They had a function. They would bring the sacrifices, animal sacrifices, grain sacrifices, uh, sacrifices of just worship, just thank God for the harvest, thank God for things. So there were thanks, right? They would do that. They were all from Aaron. So they all came through a singular bloodline. They were all part of the tribe of Levi. And ultimately, there would be a day when one priest would be designated high priest, and he would atone for the sins of the nation. He would sacrifice for himself and then the nation, and then they would just keep moving. Right? They do that year after year. So that's the priesthood in the Old Testament. In the, in the New Testament uh, and in the early church, many churches just borrowed that phrase, priest. I think uh, it was a bad borrow. So in the 1500s, a group of people began to protest the corruption of the leadership of the church, the priest of the church. They protested so strongly that now we have what's called Protestants. Those were the initial protesters. What they did was they went back to the source and they said, let's read the Bible and see if we can't course correct where this, this train wreck's about to happen with the church. And guess where they went? They found here, wait a minute, everybody that's a follower of Jesus is a part of the priesthood of believers. There's not a certain group of people that have access to God that other people don't. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have direct access to God. That's what he's saying here. That's a radical shift. That is a radical shift. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says this, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one who mediates, no longer priest. And if you do away with all the priesthood, then, then who's going to sacrifice bring a sacrifice for the sin offering. Jesus did. God said, you know what? You're going to act as priest and you're going to act as the high priest and you're going to bring the final sacrifice for sin once for all, yourself. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. Unlike other high priests, he, Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered him himself. And so we don't, we don't bring a sin sacrifice. So what in the world are we supposed to bring? Peter says, you're, you're a holy priesthood and, you're, and God's building this house and you're supposed to bring spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices are those things in our life that we bring to him motivated by the spirit of God. That's why you can say, the little drummer boy, it's all I have is my drum to bring. If the Lord has said, you know, motivated you by a spirit, then that's, God's going to go yes to that. So if you read the New Testament, there's a few things that stand out. Here's the first one in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There's our word, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is worshiping God. I call it the spiritual hokey pokey. You put your whole self in. All of it, the things you think, the, where your eyes go, what your ears listen to, what you put your nose to and what you put your nose in and what goes in your nose, what you taste and what you say, what goes in and out of your mouth, what you listen to, what your heart longs for, what your hands touch, where your feet go. It's all yours. Here, my Lord. 
use me. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Here am I, Lord. All of me, all of my faculties, everything that is mine is at your disposal. That's a spiritual act of worship. This is what we're to bring. Secondly, when you give to the Lord financially and to his work in our church, it's a spiritual offering. And when it's motivated by the Spirit, some people will give for tax reasons, and that's very sagacious, but it's not necessarily spiritual. That's why God says, I want you to give, not reluctantly, but what you've decided to give with joy in your heart. And when you do, and you're trying to advance the gospel, it's like a, a, a sweet aroma. It's very pleasing to God, like a sacrifice. Why do I say this? The Apostle Paul, if you read all of his letters, all the way to the end, you'll see that he addresses people and he does a little business in a number of those letters because he's always trying to raise some money for the church in Jerusalem, which was poor and marginalized. And on one of those trips to the uh, Philippian church, he says this at the end, in chapter four, verse 18, I have received full payment and have more than enough. I'm absolutely aptly supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. And here's how he describes the gift. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. That act of worship where you're giving to God, not only yourself, but your resources, is a spiritual sacrifice. Thirdly, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, it says this, Through Jesus, therefore, we can uh, continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips that openly profess his name. That's why we want you to sing out here. Sing, and some of you are still so hesitant to sing. We have a communion service next door. It goes from um, 7.45 to 8.30. And there's a man who, who asks everybody to sing the one hymn that we sing. And I've told him, if you have trouble singing the hymn, I'll be glad to help you, which was a mistake on my part, was I had no idea how badly he sang. The word sing doesn't even apply to what comes out of his mouth. It's, now, I know him, I love him, and I'm also resting on the fact that we're to make a joyful noise to the Lord, which is exactly what he does. I, he asked me to help him. I couldn't do it because he was so, I'm like, could you sing, could you sing a little lower, maybe a few so low I can't hear you? Because it was just, and you know what? He don't care. And what does it matter what I care? God is our audience. So we bring a sacrifice of praise. So we bring our whole self, we bring our resources, we bring our praise to him, and we also bring our care and concern for others. In the next verse, in Hebrews 3, uh, 13, 16, it says this, and don't forget to be good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So he's building us into a house, and we're to bring a sacrifice of praise as a priesthood of believers. We're to bring ourselves. We're to bring our things. We're to bring our voice of praise to him. We're to bring our goodness to others. And it's all for the Lord, and he applauds that. And now the, 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 this, this spiritual house is amazingly transformed. And why is it that we are able to do this? Because... As you come to him, as I said, everything flows out of this relationship with Jesus because we've accepted Jesus as the cornerstone and we haven't rejected him. We received, not rejected Jesus, the cornerstone. 
Now, Peter talks about Jesus as being a living stone. He's calling him a stone. That's exactly what Jesus called Simon, who he renamed Peter, because Peter means rock. And so Jesus called Simon Peter, as we know him, the apostle Peter, Rocky. And now Rocky's saying, Jesus is the rock. And on this, the whole church is built not on Peter, but on the rock. Here's the question I want to ask. Where does Peter get the idea that he should use a metaphor for a rock to refer to Jesus? He got it from Jesus. He heard Jesus say to a bunch of people that were opposing him. Now, here's the thing. When Jesus lived on this earth, he said things that people wept over. They ran to. They threw themselves at him because it was such a liberating message. Others were deeply offended, confronted, and fearful of what he said because of the attention that it got and the control that they would lose. And they rejected him. And those, many of those people were religious leaders, people who read and study the Bible in their day. And so when Jesus says, have you never read? It's a very pointed statement. Of course you have. You don't understand. So in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, and he says this to those who were rejecting him. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You religious leaders should know the Messiah when he comes, but you're rejecting him. And it's the same Messiah that God has said, that's my man, and I'm going to use him as the cornerstone. You would think the builders would know this is a good stone and not rejected. But that's what Jesus is saying. Like builders, like masons, you all rejected the stone that God chose to build with. What's a cornerstone? It's the first stone you put down when you build a building. Builders, masons, we're going to put it here, and everything, the design and the alignment are going to come off of it. So if it's not placed well, then the whole structure is going to be a mess. Nothing's going to be square, everything. The doors are never going to shut. They're going to swing open and all this kind of stuff. It's going to be a mess. Jesus, God says, he's my cornerstone. So this rock, as you carry it with you, put it in a nice place, you can think of it, Jesus is a cornerstone. Of course, this wouldn't function because it's all lopsided. Um, and we're living stones. But that's, that's, where, that's where he gets it. So let me ask you this. What's the cornerstone of your life? The Sunday school answer is Jesus. Oh, he's the cornerstone. We sang that. But what is it that you align and design your life around? What is it that has, it all has to matter? Is it keeping your reputation? Is it your appearance? Is it, is it your, um, is your family name? Maybe not your business reputation, but your family reputation? Is it your children? What do you design and align your life around? The world is telling us all the time, design and align your life around this. Jesus would say this in another place. He would say, listen, if you build your life on my words, you're going to build on a rock. If you build on something else, you're going to build on shifting sand. We all know in hurricane season, the next big storm, whatever's built on sand is gone. If it's not built on a rock, it's not going to hold. 
So what about you? What have you built on? If God can build the new covenant on the cornerstone of Jesus, you can build your little life on him. He's that solid. That solid. Peter explains that we have received, not rejected, this cornerstone. So let's see how he talks about it. He's going to say three things really fast. One from Isaiah 28, quoting one, uh, Psalm 118, and then another passage out of Isaiah, all related to stones. Here's what he says first in verse 6. For the scripture says it. See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him, that, that's how we know it's not really a rock, it's a him, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter starts there because these people that he's writing have put their faith in Jesus and life didn't get easier, it got harder. Life didn't become simpler, it got more complicated. They didn't arise in social standing, they were put down. And he says, you need to know if you trust in the cornerstone that God has laid in Zion, that's, that's a Jerusalem, that's it's a reference to the Messiah, you're not going to be put to shame. People may reject you, but God will not. And the ultimate shame is when we were rejected by God. And then he goes on in verse 7, quoting the passage that Jesus said about those rejectors. He said, now, now to you who believe... This stone that you've received is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he's just saying, yeah, people rejected Jesus. He said it. This is the verse he used. And then he jumps from that to Isaiah chapter 8. And he says, and the stone that causes people to stumble and the rock that makes them fall. And he's talking to Jesus. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So the people that reject Jesus, that refuse to believe in it, they stumble through life. I don't know if you've walked around in a dark house, and, but if you walk in the dark, you're likely going to stumble. Are you not? And he's, that's what he's saying. If you, stum if you turn off all the lights, then you're destined to stumble. So on Sunday mornings, I get up really early. I can't sleep. I'm worried about the sermon. And so I get up and I go over my notes. Sometimes I'm up at 3.30. Sometimes I'm up at 4.30. I can get up whenever I want. But the rule is the queen sleeps. She is not to be disturbed. And I forgot something in the bedroom and the lights were out. And, and I went in and I tripped over something that I'd left on the floor. Nobody fell. Nobody got hurt. But the queen was a little disturbed. Poke the bear. Sorry about that, babe. Like, are you okay? She's so sweet to ask first, are you okay? But it's in that tone which is like, please leave if you're okay. When you turn off the light, you're going to stumble. If you've been living in the dark, then don't be surprised that you stumble. And that's what Peter is saying. These, his readers were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame them in hopes that their faith would be pushed to its limit and they would begin to deny it. And Peter says, if you've trusted in the cornerstone, you will never be put to shame. Never. But maybe you have stumbled over the gospel. The gospel is a strange message. It always has been. 
It hasn't become more strange because our culture has become modern or postmodern. It's always antithetical to the way we think. So this is why the, the Apostle Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians. But we preach Christ, not just Jesus, not just wonderful, loving Jesus, but Christ crucified. We don't preach just the living Christ. We preach the one who was put to death and rose from the dead. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, maybe that's exactly what it feels like to you. Maybe you just stumble over and go, why in the world would I want to trust in a Savior that can't save themselves and invites me into uh, the brother and sisterhood of weakness and frailty and humbleness? Do you not know how the world works, preacher? You only need to survive in this world if you can stand on your own feet and take what is coming to you. Get it. Maybe you're like the, the Gentiles. This makes no sense in my head. It's foolishness. Someone else is going to die for me and make my wrongs right? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not how the world works. If you step in it, it's on your shoes, not someone else's. Maybe you've stumbled over the gospel over and over again. That's why I want to give you an opportunity to say, yes, yeah, I've stumbled. I've stumbled over it so many times, I wonder if it's appropriate now for me to go, I'd like to believe that. I've, dis I've thrown it out so many times in my own thinking with other people. It would seem, whoa, sorry, I'm going to stay put. It would seem disingenuous to me to, to now say yes. And Jesus is saying, yeah, come to me. Come to me. So our first big movement is God's making us into a, into a spiritual house. We're living stones. We have a new purpose, a sacrifice of praise. And it's all possible because we didn't reject the cornerstone on which the house is built. The second big movement is this. Because we follow Jesus, we are God's special possession. So there's the point. We are... Peter's going to rattle them off real fast, all these phrases. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, among other things. That's what we are. Verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful or marvelous light. Wow. Oh. We are all these things. We're chosen people like the people of Israel now. We're chosen not because who our mother was or who our father was, but because Jesus offered us salvation and we said yes to it. We're a royal priesthood, not just a holy priesthood. We're a royal priesthood mediating God and Christ to the nations of the world. We're bringing Christ to the world. We're a holy nation together. Not in the nationalist thing, sense that we think of with boundaries and all this. We are together a nation that God is putting together that has unique purposes, this spiritual uh, sacrifice. And we're a special possession. I love that because it's intimate. 
It's personal. We all know what a special possession is. We all have them, and we know where they are. And they're special to us because who gave them to us, how we got them, what they mean, who's they, who, who they belong to. It might be a first edition of some book, or it might be something else. If you go into one of the desks I use, it closes. So you open it, and then you look in a cubby, and you'll find a box. And in that box, if you open it under all the junk, all the little precious things that are mine, at the bottom, you're going to find the tiniest little piece of foil. It's about a quarter inch thick, and it's about two inches long. It's precious to me. Because in 1983, I was in love. And I thought, I'm going to marry that girl. I wasn't sure how that was going to work out. I still had to get through school. We were at Pine Cove, summer camp, having the time of our life. And they needed somebody to stand in as a married couple. Well, Bookie and 007 would work. So we got a little piece of foil and made a little wedding ring. It's trash to everybody else. It's precious to me. Think about what's precious to you and realize that we together are precious to God, not just us individually. We over-individualize it. We together, this community that you're a part of is unique to God. And, and that uniqueness has a unique purpose, to declare God's praises. The second half of verse 9, you're God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Oh my gosh, it is so hard and difficult to have spiritual conversations with people that we know and love that don't know Jesus and strangers that we might meet. But it's never difficult to talk about the transformation that happens when you have received mercy and you have been changed. We do it normally. We do it naturally. When I ask you, what's the most wonderful thing that you've experienced since you came to Christ? What's the most excellent thing that you get to experience as you live in the light? What would you tell me? I'm sure you can think of something rather quickly if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time. Maybe the longer we follow him, the less, in, the less we think about how special it is. So if you can think of it, then do you ever speak of it? Because we're to declare the excellencies who've moved us. And what about, what about being in the dark? Some of you know exactly what it's like to be in the dark. You remember what it's like. Have you, have you been able to identify it and talk about it in such a way that brings God's glory? When I was in the dark, I was a people-using, selfish person that left in his wake. Thanklessness hurt people, but God has changed me. And he has brought me into his light. And now what am I learning to do in Jesus? I'm learning to love rather than take. I'm learning to elevate rather than put down. I'm learning to applaud rather than to compete. I'm, I'm learning to, to be a different person. What is it that you would celebrate? Hmm. Maybe some of you are still in the darkness. In the dark, we stumble. In the dark, we're scared. In the dark, we're anxious. In the dark, we're secretive. In the dark, we get consumed by our evil thoughts. God is calling you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
So we are his special possession. That's what we are. We have a new purpose. We are to declare his praises. Why is it all possible? Because of his mercy. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's an allusion to the prophet Isaiah, where a man was asked to marry a woman who would prostitute herself over and over again. And not only was he asked to marry her, he was asked to love her because God loved the unfaithful Israel and promised to restore them and promised to make them a people when they weren't a people and promised to give them mercy when they had none. If you have a story of dark to light, it's not because of something you've done. It's because of his mercy. And mercy, like grace, is something we must receive it's not something we can earn. Why is it all possible? The mercy of God. He found me when I was lost and in the dark, and he called my name. It's my prayer for you. If it is our story, then let's tell it. And if it's not our story, then step into it. The God of the universe does not want you to live in darkness, in shame. He doesn't want you to reject him any longer. So in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask if you've never trusted Christ to put your faith in him this morning, and this is what I'd like you to do. I'm going to ask you to move you can either stand up, raise your hand, hold it up so I can see it and acknowledge it. I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm not trying to single you out because I'm going to ask everybody to keep their heads bowed so nobody's looking around. But I want you to say to God, I'm ready. I'm ready to believe in you. The hand raising, the standing, it's not what saves us. It's the faith that saves us. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. If you're here and you have been transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, is the way it's described in Colossians, then pray with me for those in the room that need to respond to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. Father God, we give you thanks that you were building and doing something in us as a community, I pray that we'd step into it. We would know one another more deeply. And together, we would bring our whole selves to you. We would offer our resources to you. We would sing with our whole heart and that we would be kind and gracious to one another. I pray that we would declare the praises of, of your excellencies to anybody that would listen because we are your special possession because you have extended mercy. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so. I invite you to put your faith in him. Maybe you have tried to come to him, but just didn't. Maybe you've tried to believe and just haven't. If you'd like to trust Christ this morning, I invite you to raise your hand, stand up, I will see you, and I want to lead you in a small prayer. Anyone in the room, raise your hand high. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Someone else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. 
All right, let's lower your hands. And just say, Lord Jesus, today, for the first time in my life, no more excuses, no more pretense, no more pretending. Today, I declare, not just with my head, but with my heart, that I believe in you, that I believe that you died for me, that you rose from the dead victoriously, and that you made a way, that you paid for my sin. And so I turn from my sin and repent of that, and I turn to you to be welcomed and received. And I thank you that you'll forgive me and that you'll welcome me and that you will begin now in me to make me part of your spiritual home where you reside. And I thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.